Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Ruth Wisher. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this afternoon's event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And, you know, I was slightly at a loss this afternoon as to how I might encapsulate the uh, multifaceted talents and achievements of this afternoon's guests. But um, in the interest of Scottish courtesy, I decided not to follow the recent example of an interviewer who called him our greatest living geek. <laughs> um, his many published works uh, seek to bring the truths of ancient philosophy to bear on the turmoil of modernity, books on love, on happiness, on status anxiety. And now these have been followed by essays on the world of work and its diverse inhabitants. We'll get to the pleasures and the sorrows of work in just a moment. And along, way, along the way, I think we might reflect just briefly um, on his statement that to be a writer is a sign of psychological neurosis. But first, it's also necessary to remind ourselves that he's just back from spending a week as the writer-in-residence in that contemporary obstacle course, Terminal 5. Please welcome Alan de Baton. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to, uh, to be here. Um, I want to talk today about uh, my new book, which is all about the world of work. And I think that some of the reason why I wrote it is that to be alive in the modern age is never to be that far from a career crisis of one sort or another. I don't know about you, but for me, a favorite time for career crisis is, well, you guess it's Sunday evening, just as the sun is starting to go down and the anxieties of uh, uh, you know, the week and, uh, and of one's life sort of gather up. Normally, the, the worst point is about five o'clock, so we're a few, few hours uh, short of that. And then by about eight o'clock, it seems, seems to get better again. But I, I guess what I'm alluding to is the fact that we live in a world with amazing opportunities and amazing complexities and problems too uh, when it comes to the world of careers. And these do lead to regular, I think, crises um, in a way that perhaps they didn't in other eras which had their own problems in relation to work, but not something that is specific as the contemporary uh, career uh, uh, crisis. Um, I think one of the reasons why we perhaps worry now more about our careers than we ever did is because we have a very odd idea that work could make us happy indeed that it should make us happy. Uh, this is an extraordinary idea, and uh, for most of human history would have been deemed uh, as such. Um, you know, for most of history, work was seen as a punishment, a penance, a necessary evil, um, not something you should ever expect anything other than uh, uh, unremitting suffering from. If you listen to someone like Aristotle, uh, he compares all paid work to slavery. Uh, he doesn't distinguish between someone who's literally owned by someone. Anyone who's dependent on somebody else uh, and is earning money from somebody else is a slave uh, for someone like Aristotle. Um, in Christianity, we find similarly very pessimistic analyses of work and its uh, 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 sufferings. Um, uh, if you listen to uh, theologians like St. Augustine, um, the, 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 uh, uh, the negative sides of work are a punishment. We're paying off the sins of Adam and Eve, uh, and uh, it's, if it's grim, it's supposed to be grim. Uh, that's the way that it was uh, designed. And this very pessimistic view of work carries on till about, well, the great thing about talking at a venue like this rather than a university is that you can come out with sentences like, in about 1750, uh, attitudes <laughs> changed. But they really did. Um, 1750, really key date. Uh, Diderot publishes uh, his famous encyclopedia, uh, the Encyclopédie, which is full of descriptions of people's work. Uh, it's the first time in history that anyone had ever sat down and actually described what a whole wide range of people do for their jobs, and had done so uh, in a spirit of admiration and interest rather than simply uh, uh, commiseration. Um, and uh, uh, 
I think what we see in the middle of the 18th century is a new brand, new group of uh, bourgeois writers, middle-class writers, sons and daughters of, of artisans, of traders, uh, who don't have the old aristocratic view of work as work as, as punishment, um, and they want to celebrate work. They're starting to see that there could actually be a lot of the things that we today still hope that we'll get from work, a sense of fulfillment, creativity, uh, self-development, or all these very contemporary terms, you start to detect them for the first time in the work of people like Diderot, also Benjamin Franklin in the United States, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, a lot of other uh, thinkers who are suddenly starting to bring up a new uh, vision of uh, uh, what work could be. Very interesting that just about exactly the same time, you get new ideas of love uh, in the air. Again, for most of human history, the idea that you could actually be in love with the person that you married uh, was deemed completely extraordinary and uh, uh, ridiculously ambitious. Uh, you got married for reasons, you know, just to hand down the family farm or pot or plough, whatever it happened to be, for dynastic, broadly, you could call it dynastic reasons, uh, certainly not for reasons of, of sentiment. Suddenly this starts to change, and an interesting parallel. So just as uh, uh, work suddenly starts to seem like something that you could combine necessity uh, uh, in um, with, uh, um, with pleasure. So you could have not only money, but also pleasure. So too, in the realm of love, uh, you can have not only uh, emotional satisfaction, but also um, uh, the practical benefits of being in a sort of family uh, unit. So two things start going out of the window in the middle of the 18th century. Things that had been seen as a vital safety valve uh, for people. I'm thinking about, on, on the one hand, uh, uh, the mistress, and on the other hand, the hobby. The mistress and the hobby in the realms of love and work were seen as vital safety valves. Um, I don't really need to expand on that, but uh, you, you'll get my point, that it, you didn't need to have everything in your job or indeed everything in your marriage. Um, you could have these outside interests and, um, and they were really there to acknowledge the difficulties of having it all in, as it were, one place. So um, uh, this starts to uh, uh, vitally shape modern attitudes towards love and work. And we're the heirs of those attitudes, you know, we still expect, as we start out in life, that we're going to have, um, you know, despite all the disasters we observe around us and the generation above us, we're expecting we're going to have, hopefully we're going to have a, a good marriage and a fulfilled working life. Um, and of course we hit regular, perhaps weekly, hope I'm not being too autobiographical, uh, weekly <laughs> crises uh, in both those areas as our hopes crash into uh, our, our, our realities. So um, anyway. We have these beautiful ideals about love and work, um, and they're incredibly ambitious. Um, they'll probably come true for, I don't know, 10, 15% of us, and the rest of us are left wondering, hmm, where did I personally uh, go wrong? So that's really the starting point of this, uh, of this book and this investigation. Um, these very, very high expectations we have, not necessarily wrongly, but um, interestingly anyway. Um, there were some more sort of personal reasons why I started writing uh, uh, this book about work. Um, Partly, it was because I felt, and still feel, that um, not enough gets written about the workplace. Um, you know, uh, we spend most of our lives uh, uh, at work, and yet if you um, looked at the average uh, front table in an average large bookshop, and if you were a Martian and trying to understand what the modern world was like simply from reading uh, uh, what was on the front tables of bookshops, you'd come away with the impression that basically people spend their time falling in love, uh, squabbling with their families, sometimes murdering people, but not really going to work. Uh, it just doesn't appear. It, it, it's, it's very odd. There's this sort of silence. Of course, work does get represented in the business pages of newspapers and business uh, uh, journalism more broadly. Um, but that's one particular factor. You know, it's the share price of a company, etc., 
which doesn't reflect the huge number of dramas and uh, uh, interests that are going on um, uh, underneath the financial headline. So I was challenged in a way to try and write about the human side of uh, uh, business and, uh, and enterprise. Um, I was also uh, interested in the way that um, nowadays, when you go on holiday somewhere, um, the whole focus is on leisure and on leisure pursuits. And you're not really supposed to be interested in the workplace. You're supposed to have left that behind and have no, absolutely no interest. Um, but I was reading about the history of uh, tourism. And fascinating, that in the 18th century, when people used to go, when the aristocrats, this would be mostly, when, when they went off on their grand tours of, the, of continental Europe, uh, when they arrived in the city, let's say when you arrived in Naples or something, you wouldn't just head straight for the churches and the museums. You'd take an interest in local industry, in the way that the local community community was uh, sustaining itself. So if you arrived in Naples, you'd go and see uh, the armory, you'd go and see uh, uh, the grain stores, you'd go and see the aqueducts. Um, in other words, you'd go and see how a city was working as much as uh, the city as, a, as an area of leisure. And this has always sort of fascinated me and intrigued me. And I think that um, one of the things that makes tourism often quite challenging is the lack of interest we're supposed to have about how an area that we visit is actually working. Um, and uh, so again, I wanted to try and sort of challenge that and, and in a way take the reader on a series of journeys that are comparable to a kind of uh, a, a new vision of what one might do on one's uh, travels. Um, I was also inspired uh, by um, a wonderful children's book by the uh, uh, American children's writer uh, Richard Scarry. He wrote a lovely book called What Do People Do All Day? I don't know if any of you know it. Uh, fantastic. And in fact, the working title of my book was What Do People Do All Day? This was a question that was very alive for me and uh, my then four-year-old son. And we used to read uh, Scarry's book uh, a lot. And it's a very basic question which kids are allowed to ask, but somehow adults are not, which is what do people do all day? Um, and what goes on? You know, we all know what we're doing and in our own narrow special but what, what are other people doing? And I've had friends, I've been friends with them for 15, 20 years, and I still don't really know what they do. So my new favorite question to ask of people is, what were you doing at 10.30 this morning, you know, if it's a weekday? Because it's amazing what you learn about friends that, you know, you think you know a lot of their life, and actually you know a slice of their life, but not necessarily that one. So I wanted to pick deliberately a number of occupations that don't get much airtime, don't get much uh, sort of representation, particularly in art. Um, uh, so, and I wrote, this book is divided into 10 chapters, and... Um, there are things like chapters on accountancy, uh, chapters on biscuit manufacture, uh, chapters on electricity uh, transmission. I was partly guided by what you see on TV. You know, if you're interested in careers and you watch TV, um, you do get a few insights. If you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or a criminal, uh, there's quite a lot of information on, on the screen. But there's never been a TV drama about logistics. So I was just challenged to try and head for some of these uh, more uh, unfamiliar uh, areas. I was also inspired one day when I was um, uh, going around the, um, uh, uh, the, um, the mouth of the River Thames down at Tilbury, um, which is the main, uh, still the main uh, uh, area where ships coming in to uh, the port of London will let off their, 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 their produce. And it's a fascinating place. You know, the, the fashionable question in, uh, in London, um, or indeed any big city, is always, you know, what's on at the National Gallery or whatever. But no one really goes, you know, what's, what's coming into Tilbury docks? You know, what's, uh, what's sailing up the river? But it's a fascinating question. And there was no one looking, of course. These amazing ships were coming in from Asia car transporters from Korea, etc. Uh, and no one was looking apart from, I did notice, a group of people uh, at a jetty, narrow jetty, and they were dressed in the sort of proverbial outfit of, of such people, uh, 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 leather, uh, thick uh, uh, rubber boots and uh, 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 rainproof uh, gear, uh, binoculars, many had beards, uh, ship spotters, uh, and, and uh, they were there uh, in force. And I remember thinking, 
you know, that, that in a way I loved what they were looking at. I didn't necessarily like the, the nature of their interests because it seemed to be limited. They, they were really only interested in um, uh, the registration of the ship and the length of the turbine. And I think they, they reminded me of, uh, they're almost like people who've fallen deeply in love with somebody and all they can think of doing is sort of measuring the distance from her sort of shoulder blade to, uh, you know, some other part of her anatomy. So it seemed very, very uh, sort of mechanical, their interests. But I loved I loved that they were doing it in a way, and I loved that they were out there in all weathers, taking an interest in things we don't normally look at. And so this is my own, um, well, you, you put it very well, uh, this is my own geek uh, study of the world of, uh, of work, and I went out in my uh, rainproof gear and, um, and, and studied stuff. Um, one of the areas that I went to look at, I just talked to you about some of the things I, I went to look at and, and discovered. One of the things I went to look at was the world of logistics. Um, and logistics is really the, the all-encompassing word for how stuff gets around in the modern world. And partly I was challenged to do this because one of the real features of the world we live in is we don't know where stuff comes from. You know, 200 years ago, um, there were a lot less goods available in, in the shops, obviously, but you used to know exactly where things came from. You probably have a personal relationship with, you know, the person who uh, made you the jumper that you were wearing or the desk that you were uh, using or the milk you were drinking. You used to know where stuff came from and who did it, and, um, uh, uh, and that was an important part of sort of being... Uh, located in a particular place and understanding um, uh, a particular community. Um, that's completely gone now. Obviously, the choice uh, is enormous, but we just don't know where stuff comes from. Uh, there's a little label somewhere, but on the whole, we have no idea. You know, there's a joke about sort of children walking around supermarkets and they're amazed that, um, you know, strawberries don't grow in the supermarket, etc. So there's, we just don't know the origins of, of things, which leads to all sorts of feelings. Um, uh, a feeling that you're cut off, obviously, a feeling um, that you are alienated from, uh, from the world of uh, uh, production that you enjoy as a consumer, um, and also feelings of guilt, because we just don't know the conditions normally uh, in which things have been produced. So feelings of guilt and alienation and general sort of disembodiment. Um, and it was partly in order to kind of um, fight against that in a, in a small way that I decided I, to undertake a very bizarre project, which struck me one night when I was looking around the Sainsbury's warehouse. Sainsbury's have an enormous warehouse um, on the north of the M25, just outside London, uh, and it feeds uh, about a third of London. Uh, it's an absolutely huge. I mean, the word cathedral is much overused, but this really is a cathedral-sized uh, uh, space. And um, one night, about three in the morning, I was hanging out there, and there was an area about this size of this tent um, that was full of tuna fish. Um, the entire thing was just filled of tuna steaks. And I remember chatting to the forklift uh, uh, driver who was in charge of moving them onto uh, lorries, and he told me that they would all have been in the ocean about 28 hours before, uh, and they're all going to be in various supermarkets um, within the following 12 hours around the UK, as far north as the very tip of Scotland and down to the uh, southwest of England, so all over the UK. And I remember this struck me as just completely bizarre. Um, and I sort of imagined um, the way that, you know, there are lots of fish in aeroplanes, and I think this is sort of a quintessential part of the modern world. You look up at a plane, there's lots of fish in the hold, uh, always. Um, and I dreamt up this bizarre project, basically, of following the tuna fish from the Indian Ocean, where they're caught, uh, all the way to... Um, the plate, uh, and I wanted to, and I worked with a photographer to take a photograph of every single person who came in touch with the tuna during that journey. It could have been anything, really, that I followed. It could have been, you know, I could have gone to the Western Australian desert and looked at how uh, iron ore gets transported there, ends up in the uh, car factories of Mexico. It doesn't matter so much what. It was, for me, a kind of emblematic way of reconnecting. And I think that one of the things that art can do in the, art of, in the age of uh, advanced logistics is to make those connections again, to try and show us the people that we never think about because we don't understand them, we don't know them, who are they, uh, that we're connected to uh, in our daily lives. And normally the connection is only 
only uh, economic, but there is also, I think, a very important imaginative connection that I was trying to uh, stitch back uh, as a kind of um, uh, object lesson, really. Um, I went to look at other uh, occupations. One of the other things, one of the other areas I went to look at was the world of career counselling. Now, career counselling is an interesting one because, in a way, career counselling is the most important job in the world because it's the job that will guide you towards what you do with your life. Um, and uh, so I wanted to look at, at, at career counselling. And the interesting thing, career counselling seems to me to sit on all sorts of paradoxes about the way that we find ourselves, find our ways into a, a job. Um, unlike many things, uh, in work, in our attitudes to work, we're very frequently capable of saying, I know exactly what I don't want, but I don't know what I do want. In other words, we have this very strong sort of negative sense, but we don't really know. Our, our dreams and our hopes are extremely vague. And why is that? You know, when it comes to our appetites in, in, in food, um, you know, we don't stand around in the kitchen going, what shall I eat? Well, sometimes we do for a minute, but very quickly, um, you know, we get information from our senses, etc. We know what to go for. That isn't the case with, uh, uh, with, with, with work for all sorts of uh, reasons. Um, and I wanted to try and, and, and explore those with this um, career counsellor. One of the things he, 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 he does whenever people come and see him, um, there was a career counsellor working in South London from his, uh, from his home. And one of the things that he does uh, when people come to see him is he asks them to stop thinking about what they could do with their life. Because he thinks that that is such an intimidating issue that it actually distracts people and frightens them too much. He simply gives people a piece of paper and it's headed, things I like. And he encourages you to sit down in this room for about 10 minutes and just write down whatever comes into your head. It could be, I like, you know, the smell of cut grass, uh, the look of, um, you know, fresh concrete, uh, uh, chatting with my grandmother, whatever it is, just put it down without thinking. And this piece of paper then becomes uh, one of the things that he uses in discussion to try and guide people back to their enthusiasms, the things that they genuinely and legitimately uh, enjoy. Because it's his suggestion, which I think is very accurate in many ways, um, that as we grow up, we lose sight of our spontaneous uh, desires because of pressures of the status and money. Um, and so we lose sight of what it is that we might actually want to do. And so childhood has a very privileged place uh, to play, role to play in the story of how um, we get lost in our careers and how we might find our way back uh, to our careers. Um, I hope it's not too romantic, but I think there is something in that. You know, if you watch a four-year-old child uh, at play, um, again, they never sit around going, what shall I do? Um, they just know what to do. They just go for it. And they're passionate and it's instinctive. And we lose that for all sorts of reasons. And so it's a way of trying to get back to, uh, uh, to, to, to some of that. Um, you know, there's a uh, 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 there was the medieval idea in Christianity, medieval Christian idea, that um, certain people would be called to serve God. Uh, and this idea of a calling still hovers somewhere um, in the back of our minds when we're thinking about our careers. Um, I think a lot of us are haunted by a sense that uh, if things are going well, we should be pulled very strongly in a particular direction towards something that the sky may one day open and go, you know, you accountancy and you, you know, advanced logistics or whatever. On the whole, it doesn't happen. Uh, very few of us are called. A few of us are called to certain, I'm not talking about in the secular context, very few of us are called to feel a very strong impulse. Most of us flail around and we feel these very minor bursts of interest. Um, we feel these little tremors, you know, someone tells us something that we're doing and we feel a bit of jealousy. And then we think, oh, I shouldn't feel jealous. So we put that jealousy aside. We don't examine it. And the whole task, I think, of career counselling is to grab these moments, to, to, to sit on that jealousy, grab it and say, okay, what's in it? 
there's something in it to look at these little tremors of interest and um, try and assemble them into something that very, very far down the line uh, could uh, resemble something that we call a career, but not to start with that uh, right at the beginning. Of course, career counselling, it sits on a very traumatic area of, of life because so many of us have started down slightly the wrong path. And to try and acknowledge that, to try and own up to that, is very, very difficult, partly because people around us are heavily invested in us being a certain way. Um, I think all of us know that phenomenon, that even very well-meaning people, we say things like, oh, you know, I quite like to do something else. And they go, oh, but, you know, you're great. You're great as a what, dot, 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 etc." And they, they, they sort of, in a very well-meaning way, restrict us. And it can be very, very traumatic um, to announce to friends and family that actually perhaps we, you know, like to change our, our direction in life. It's rather like coming out sexually. Um, it's, you know, you gather the family round and you say, you know, I'm sorry, I've got difficult news to break. I'm not the person you always thought I was. Uh, and you know, your sister runs upstairs screaming, going, I knew it, I knew it. And you say, you know, I'm not, I'm not an accountant, I'm, I'm, I'm a landscape gardener, you know, and everybody's in panic. And, um, but you know, this happens um, all the time. And I think we always need to be ready, I think, when we're dealing with ourselves, but also with other people around us that perhaps are on the verge of that sort of crisis, and just to give people that room to um, perhaps um, uh, start to become rather different to what we imagine them to be. Um, that said, having come with lots of admiration for lots of things in career counselling, there are also things I didn't particularly uh, uh, like about it or I got rather frustrated with. Partly, um, I thought that it, it's a remarkably apolitical kind of business, uh, 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 career counselling. It suggests that the only reason why you don't have a job that you love is with you. It li the reason lies with you. Um, and obviously, you know, you're part of the story, but it's not just that you haven't found, you know, your way to uh, your dreams. It's also partly that we live in a world which has all sorts of economic and political pressures and uh, ways of arranging things, which are also part of the story of why people uh, um, uh, sometimes get lost. And particularly in the current uh, recession, a lot of companies, when they make people redundant, they send them off to a career counsellor. Um, which is in a way very nice and in a way absurd because having just um, you know, removed the thing that they wanted to do, um, they're then sent off to somebody else who might try and help them to find the thing that they really want to do, which is you know, the thing they've just um, lost their job in. So um, it, it, it can be paradoxical and it can sometimes seem like an excuse for um, uh, certain kinds of political uh, uh, action or more, more political action. Um, also, I think there's sometimes a sentimentality that creeps into career counselling. I've done a lot of uh, creative writing teaching in my time, and sometimes it reminds me a little bit of creative writing teaching. The, 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 the myth of creative writing teaching is that everybody can be a great writer. Um, and I think they can't be, really. And um, I think that uh, career counselling similarly assumes that everybody can find their way to a glorious destiny, which, again, maybe they can't. And so there's a cruelty involved in setting up the situation where, as it were, it's come to seem something that is actually a rare gift uh, in a way, to, to find your way to something you love, uh, is, is um, uh, uh, presented as an absolute right and an inevitable thing that will uh, naturally follow from a course of uh, counselling or, or whatever. So I'm sort of uh, interested in that. Also, I think there's, there's a dream that goes on behind uh, the world of career counselling and the sort of ethos that it carries, which is that we could one day build a perfect world where everybody ends up in the right place. Everybody finds their way to the perfect job. And this is very much the, uh, uh, the political meritocratic ideal. You know, um, all political parties, left and right, all agree that what we should really be trying to do is to create a meritocratic society. In other words, a society where people end up where they deserve to be. And it's a beautiful idea, and you know, that's why we should reform education, and uh, that's why we should reform how companies promote people, etc. All of which very admirable goals. But I think there's one important thing to remember, which is it's impossible ever to have 
have a meritocracy. I mean, we can take steps in that direction, indeed we should, but we must always remember we'll never get there. It's an ideal. Um, and we'll never get there because there are too many accidents along the way. Um, there's biology, there's, there's sheer accidents and randomness of life. We'll never be able to slot everybody in uh, the right place. There's a lovely idea, I mentioned St. Augustine, and let mention him again now. Um, in the City of God, he says it's a sin to judge any person by their post, what we would call their job. Um, and he says that the only person who can ever judge what someone is worth, their value as a human being, uh, is God. And he's going to do that on the day of judgment to the sound of trumpets and uh, angels and thunderclaps, etc. And then everybody will be slotted into the right place. Mad idea for uh, a secular person, but nevertheless completely fascinating. Because really what it's trying to do from a secular point of view is suggest that you hold off judging people on the basis of where they've ended up uh, in life, that there's perhaps more um, uh, to all of us than what is on our business card. And this seems to be an absolutely fundamental way that we should respond to, you know, normally uh, in the modern world, when you first meet somebody, you immediately say, what do you do? Uh, and um, people are either sort of then delighted to see you or they sort of look at their watch and uh, uh, hover away. It's a very challenging kind of question. And many, many of us um, are, I think, very often in a position where we don't like to be identified with what we're doing because we're doing it for all kinds of reasons and um, uh, it might not truly represent us. So trying to be more imaginative about understanding people's identity um, seems uh, uh, sort of key. Um, let me talk to you about other uh, places I went to go and look at and, and people I went to see. I went to spend some time in, um, at United Biscuits, and United Biscuits are the UK's largest uh, biscuit manufacturer. Uh, they're the second uh, largest uh, manufacturer in the bagged nut market, but they're very big uh, in, in biscuits. Um, they represent all kinds of, uh, they make all kinds of um, very familiar brands, things like Go Ahead and McVitie's and Twiglets and uh, Hula Hoops and uh, KP Nuts. Uh, and I went to look at them as they were launching uh, a new kind of biscuit called The Moment. Um, uh, it was a new kind of chocolate and caramel uh, biscuit. I don't know if any of you have had a, a moment or are familiar with The Moment. Pro perhaps, probably not. Um, uh, I, 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 the reason not is that um, all biscuits have an, an identity. Um, uh, all biscuits are very precisely targeted. You know, as you're pushing down your, your trolley down the supermarket aisle, uh, way before you know what you want to eat, uh, there's a biscuit out there that's been designed for you. And it knows you, it understands your age, your demographic, your hopes, your aspirations, your fears, etc. And the moment uh, is, a, is a biscuit that was explicitly designed for women uh, between the ages of 26 to 36, uh, living on lower incomes in the south of England. Um, could cover people here, but perhaps not. Um, so, in other words, things have a very strict uh, uh, identity. And the moment um, is a moment that was designed to represent uh, me time for very busy mothers, uh, normally. It's, a, it's a, a moment taken out of a busy uh, kind of life. Now, um, I was fascinated working, uh, lo looking at um, people, people at United Biscuits. Uh, United Biscuits is an enormous business. It's got, employs something like 15,000 people strung out of a, a variety of uh, uh, manufacturing sites. And one of the things that happens when you uh, go and hang out there is that you could, it's very hard to understand what people do. So when you do say to them, what, what are you doing at United Biscuits? Um, they come up with things like, you know, I'm a packaging technologist, or I'm a data systems analyst. And it takes about nine more questions to try and even scratch the surface of what it is they're actually doing. Um, and this is absolutely normal and right. Um, this is a sign of another absolutely key feature of the modern working world, which is specialization. Um, if you had to try and sum up what makes the modern world so particularly productive and so rich, it's the fact that we are a world of specialists. Um, uh, if you listen to uh, uh, economic theory, um, this explains the wealth of uh, nations. Adam Smith was onto it. But in the 19th century, Vilfredo Pareto, uh, the economist, uh, Italian economist, came up with the famous equation in which he said that 
Um, the more specialists there are in a nation, the richer that nation will be. The more jobs have been subdivided, uh, the more uh, 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 that nation uh, will, be, will be wealthy. So there's no point, you know, doctors coming home in the evening and starting to make yogurt, uh, or train drivers uh, uh, starting to make children's clothes. You know, you specialize in a narrow area, you get very good at that, and then you sell uh, your produce to other people, and that's the way that wealth uh, 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 comes about. Um, that's very good from an economic point of view. There is of course, one huge challenge from a non-economic point of view, from a human point of view, if you like. And for me, that centers around the word meaning. Um, right? One of the things that we really desperately want from our work is this word meaning. Um, you know, when, when, when you talk to people and they say, you know, I'm not satisfied in my work or whatever, um, they'll very often circle around that word meaning. They'll say, you know, my job is lacking in meaning. Um, and I was very fascinated while I was writing my book, you know, what are people trying to get at? And I think, well, my thesis really on this is that Though we're often presented as uh, selfish creatures who are primarily motivated by a, a need for, for money, um, a very, very strong impulse uh, in us is the need to make a difference to other people's lives, an absolutely key uh, uh, thing. We want to help other people, and we do this through two, in two ways, either by alleviating their suffering uh, or by increasing pleasure in some way in their lives. Um, so the most obvious jobs are, you know, stitching someone, someone up after an accident, a brain surgeon, etc. But anything that in some ways leaves a person better at the end of the day than it was, uh, than they were at the beginning, uh, is fulfilling that sort of meaning function. So it could be, you know, reuniting somebody with their luggage or sanding a stair banister or making a cake or whatever it is. But in some ways that you can see that through your labor, you are in, uh, improving somebody else's life. This has become incredibly hard to see. Um, Something like 70% of the UK's working population works uh, in working environments of over 100 people. In other words, we work in big organizations. And one of the problems with big organizations is you can't see the difference you're making. Um, it's very, very hard. So at United Biscuits, there were people in the back office, uh, employee number you know, 8,300. They were so far removed from making, from the, either the manufacturer or the selling of a biscuit. Um, they were involved, let's say, in the insurance or the pallets uh, that transport biscuit cartons from the warehouse to uh, the central, uh, 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 um, uh, you know, to the supermarkets. Uh, you're very, very far from the difference that you feel you're making. Making biscuits is a meaningful activity. You know, anyone who's ever been hungry at 11 o'clock knows, you know, thank goodness that there are uh, biscuits around. Problem is, it might not feel like it by the time you're uh, uh, employee number 8,000. So again, this is something very, very key to uh, the way the modern world uh, 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 works. Um, I went to look at the world, another area that I went to look at is the world of accountancy. Uh, and partly I went, I was challenged to do this because whenever people talk about a boring job, they, the word accountancy often gets mentioned. And um, this just seemed to me impossible. How could accountancy be entirely boring? And I was challenged uh, to look at it and I went to uh, uh, spend a lot of time in the world's second largest accountancy firm that I can't name for legal reasons, um, but it's a very large uh, uh, firm. It's got, they've got offices in central London just by Tower Bridge. You might recognize it. And they employ something like 10,000 people in a huge tower. Uh, and um, anyway, I was fascinated to, uh, to see how people were working. Lots of things, you know, this is a, a giant white collar factory, as it were, quintessential way of organizing people in the modern world. One of the things I wanted to look at was the world of human resources, the HR department, because I wanted to look at motivation. 
Um, you know, one of the key things about um, a, a modern workforce is how do you get people to work and to feel engaged? Um, motivation didn't used to be a problem. For most of human history, there was only one thing you really needed uh, to motivate people, and that was a whip. Uh, you just hit people. If they didn't work hard enough, you just hit them, and then they'd work a bit better. So, you know, they were quarrying stones or, um, you know, uh, rowing, and they, you know, just hit them. Um, unfortunately, in most organizations now, it's just not done to uh, hit people, and so that's where the HR department comes in. Um, <laughs> It's basically designed to do much the same thing, but to engage people's hearts and minds in uh, the job uh, at hand. And um, I was prepared to be quite sarcastic about what their activities were, but I, was, I actually became quite gripped um, by, by it all. Um, and it seemed to be almost at times rather admirable because, you know, when I was there, they were launching, they were just uh, launching an anti-bully, a 24-hour anti-bullying hotline. So basically, if anybody uh, has a problem in their workplace, um, anybody's feeling humiliated, put down, um, uh, 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 not, you know, uh, uh, admired in the right way, etc. You can call up this line and talk about it any time of day or night to a trained psychologist, and it will be handled extremely sensitively. Also, you know, amazing level of detail in this that if there's a colleague who's got bad breath, uh, you can call up uh, a hotline, not just for the bad breath, but but just in general hotline. And again, you can report the problem. Uh, this could seem very bizarre, but you know, accountants tend to work in very small teams. So you've got four or five in a team, and if one of the members of your team and, and they're client facing, so uh, and they get paid very much on the basis of how they're able to hold clients and etc. So if one of your members of your team has got a problem in this area, this could really jeopardise your business as much as any other problem. So how do you handle this? This is a, a legitimate problem of business, and you call up this uh, line, and within a couple of uh, uh, days, that person will be called up by the HR department and invited on a course that's got objectively nothing to do uh, with uh, 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 the teeth. And it's just got to do, you know, you might be invited on a letter writing course or on a public speaking course, in the course of which, this course, um, you will be left in absolutely no doubt as to the importance of oral hygiene, but, <laughs> but in a way that doesn't make you feel personally involved or personally responsible. It's incredibly, uh, 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 almost as a beautiful kind of uh, attention to dynamics. And, it's almost as though there's levels of civility and um, uh, good negotiation that goes on in the largest and most advanced companies uh, that beats the rest of life. You know, for most of history, um, private life, domestic life, used to be the, the realm of kindness, generosity, sympathy, empathy, and the workplace was the place of exploitation and cruelty. But, you know, I sometimes come back from my time at the accountancy uh, firm and come back home, my wife and I would be sitting down for dinner, and it'd be a Friday night, and about nine o'clock, and the crockery would just be about to start to fly, and, um, and suddenly I'd be thinking, goodness, if only the HR department were here, and uh, could call up, you know, an anti-bullying hotline, uh, could sing some company songs. So a kind of way in which, as I say, domestic life and company life sometimes are, are showing interesting mutations in terms of where, where the generosity and the sympathy lie. Um, uh, Another thing, another few things. Um, I, I work as a writer mostly at home, and one of the things I always really worry about is how little work I get done, and I'm constantly feel very guilty that I'm looking out the window and changing light bulbs, etc. And I always think of uh, friends of mine who are going off to uh, the office as incredibly productive, and um, you know, going off uh, in the early morning uh, to, to the tube, and I watch them, and uh, as I say, I feel very, very uh, 
about my own levels of productivity. So one of the things that was really great about spending time in the accountancy firm is that I realized that um, people in offices spend a huge amount of time wasting time. Um, <laughs> and this was such a relief. Uh, no meeting can open without at least seven and a half minutes of something that isn't to do with a meeting, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like I, I thought of the modern corporation as like a, a bucket, and it's filled with water, but it's got full of holes. And um, it's, you know, it's been carried along. And it's amazing if by the end of the tax year there's anything left in that bucket uh, at all. Um, there's, there's an amazing amount of waste and error uh, in uh, uh, business and in life in general. And I think it's a very kind of touching thing. We are creatures of mistakes, um, all of us. And that gets re reflected in the way that we work. And it's just amazing how, for a lot of the time, we're very, very careful and companies husband resources and negotiate endlessly and painfully with, you know, for just a few pounds in somebody's pay packet. And then occasionally, huge errors will be made and someone will just get a pile of cash, light uh, a fire and just watch it go up in, in flames. And so we're incredibly, a mixture of this incredible restraint and this incredible sort of wastefulness. We waste time, we make errors, etc. And so that was something that I was sort of keen to study. I was also keen to study the working culture and the way there's an incredible sort of megalomania about, um, uh, uh, about uh, working hard. And, um, uh, you know, there's a sort of machismo about work now that, uh, it's certainly in this accountancy firm, um, uh, you could work all night uh, if, you, if you wanted. And a few times a, a month, if you're in the junior ranks, you'd have to show that you really believed in the company by spending all night working. And there was a pizza trolley that would come around about one o'clock in the morning uh, with some Cokes. And you had to show that you had done a few what, what get called pizza nights um, in order to show that you were dedicated uh, to, to the company. And this sort of odd sort of mixture of the wasting time and then showing that you uh, are absolutely committed by these sort of long, uh, long hours. And I remember uh, it was all Saturday, uh, one, one Saturday, and I'd been following this team and they'd been at work since 9 a.m. the previous Friday, of that Friday, and they'd been up all night uh, and it was Saturday afternoon. And I remember watching them, and suddenly I started thinking about the Sabbath, uh, you know, the, the Jewish Sabbath. Now, what, what is the Sabbath? I mean, the Sabbath is really it's a mad idea, again, from a secular point of view, but God creates the world, and, uh, you know, then he's finished creating the world, been very busy all week, and then he takes a step back and uh, asks us just to sort of look at his creation and admire it and not do any work, put down our tools. Mad idea to secular ears, nevertheless something very important. What, what could that story be about to secular ears? I think it is really a story about megalomania. It's really, uh, you have to put down your tools because you have to remember that you did not create the world basically. Uh, and sometimes when you're at the office, you think you've got all the levers and that you're, you're somehow controlling your destiny uh, and that you're controlling destiny in general. Most of the levers that we're pulling are not connected uh, and um, uh, there isn't really much uh, of this kind of uh, uh, connection. So taking time off isn't just good for the body. It's also good in a way for the soul. It's a way of acknowledging um, that, we, that most of what happens to us or much of what happens to us, a frightening amount of what happens to us is uh, disconnected to the results we achieve. And in a way, the Sabbath was once a very important part of instilling that message. And we haven't found a way, I think, in secular life of um, uh, finding our way back to that. Um, just, I don't know if we know each other well enough, but one, one of the things I was also fascinated about in, in, in offices is, is how um, there's a kind of curious level of eroticism in, in offices. And uh, this took me by surprise. Um, because one of the things that we, when we think about our forebears, um, we tend to think about how repressed they were about relationships. And um, 
You know, if you think about the Victorians, they used to get incredibly het up about someone who was, uh, you know, showing an ankle or um, uh, the slightest bit of flirtation was seen as, you know, very bad, and they, people fainted, etc. Uh, and we think this is ridiculous, and we, we feel that we pride ourselves on how absolutely open-minded we are about uh, sexual matters, and, and uh, you know, we, we're not like the Victorians at all until you get to a modern corporation and you get handed the guidebook on how to behave, uh, which I was on the first day. Not, I wasn't singled out, um, but. Uh, <laughs> I was given the, the brochure that gets given to all new employees, a huge folder, and one chapter is, uh, it doesn't call itself this, but basically it's about sex. Uh, and it, uh, and it really, the advice boils down to uh, uh, don't do it. Uh, not with anybody, uh, anyone above, below, to the left, to the right, man, woman, no, nothing. Um, and in a way, it's almost a kind of level of prudishness, you could say. Um, now, this is all dressed up as protecting the innocent from potentially unwanted advances of superiors, normally men. Um, and of course, some of that is true. But I think there's something else going on uh, uh, behind these sort of codes of conduct. And I think it's jealousy. I think the modern corporation is jealous at the thought there might be something more interesting than work <laughs> out there. And it's trying to prevent us from thinking too much about this. Um, the most dominant uh, 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 sort of powerful movement of the modern age is the corporation. Uh, in the Middle Ages, it was probably the church. And it's interesting that the church was also and similarly uh, uh, jealous and similarly tried to get us to stop thinking about that. So in the name of money in the one hand, in the name of God in the other, uh, we're being urged to keep our thoughts on uh, 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 one thing and not on another. Um, let me uh, just finish up. I, I don't... Some of what I said may, may have sounded pessimistic, but I don't want to sound too pessimistic about uh, the world of work. I'm a firm believer that work offers us a very key opportunity to try and be happy. Um, and I think I just want to sort of sum up by saying, you know, what, what is it that works when work does work? I think that all of us have a very strong, what you could call ordering impulse. One of the most basic impulses that all human beings have is to put some order in the world, in a chaotic world. And that's why one of the most basic and fundamental of all jobs is gardening. Um, and uh, when people fantasize about what they might want to do, they often fantasize about gardening, uh, or being a landscape gardener, so, you know, taking up gardening, because it has it all. Gardening has it all. It's about finding not the whole world. I'm not talking about farming. I'm talking about gardening. And the thing about gardening is you find a small plot of land in which you're able to impose, for a brief amount of time, a bit of order, to train something that was naturally chaotic and to, find, to make some order. So whether it's you know, um, a data management uh, or uh, uh, you know, ordering words on a page or loaves of bread on a baker's oven or, what, or on a baker's shelf or whatever it is, very strong ordering uh, impulse. I think we also, work offers us at its best a chance to be that bit better in our work than we manage to be in the rest of our lives. You know, most of us in, the, the, uh, uh, in, in much of our lives we're a little bit disappointing. We can't quite get ourselves together. Family life is very challenging. It's very hard to be a parent, very hard to be uh, a son, a daughter, etc. We find these roles very, very hard. But sometimes our jobs offer us an opportunity to pull ourselves together in a way that we can't in other areas of our life and to produce something that's a little bit better than we manage to be. And that could be, that could be a business that we're running. That could be you know, food that we're able to make, a book we're writing, a pot we're making, whatever it is. But a little island of something that is a little bit better than we are. We often knock people for, work, for being workaholics. And we say, you know, shouldn't be a workaholic. And indeed, I, you know, I just tease people who, who were. But to be more benevolent towards workaholism, sometimes people work very hard because they can't get the rest of their life right. And I think we want to get sympathetic. I think it's worth being sympathetic towards that uh, 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 as well. Um, time is running out, but we've got a little bit of time for, for questions. So do come back at me with thoughts. And thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you.
have to say, Alan, that I found it very dispiriting when you got to the world of biscuits, because clearly I'm a woman destined never to have moments. You know. <laughs> <laughs> never know. They're quite nice. They're quite tasty. They gave me a huge sample. Yes, but sample. I'm in the wrong demographic for all kinds of reasons. They gave me a huge, I am too, but they gave me a huge sample. And at first I thought, oh, I never eat these. And I just sat in the corner of my office. And uh, by the end of writing this book, they were all gone. So I'm Don't you hate a man who can eat moments and not get fat? Um, <laughs> There's just one or two th quick things I want to say about the book before I, I throw it open. Um, when Alan was uh, doing the career counselling, uh, he did the brave thing and he took a personality profiling test himself. And um, I can share with you the results of that. It said um, the candidate displays average abilities, which would render him well suited to a range of middle ranking administrative and commercial posts. Mo most of my critics would agree with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So clearly not a round peg in a round hole. Yeah. There's something else I'm curious about because um, you said. Um, when you went on the hunt for the great white tuna, um, you said that you were prompted by a, a little bit in the back of the tin which said, caught by line in the Maldives, and, you, yeah. and if, thereafter you went there. If it had said, caught by line off Wigan Pier, would you have displayed the same enthusiasm? <laughs> well, I w it was a toss-up between that and a North Sea trawler. Um, and Funny which one, isn't it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, partly, partly the reason I chose that was, obviously, it's very nice to go to the Indian Ocean, although very difficult as well. Um, but partly because it, it's about this strange world we live in where these things are transported enormous distances. Something that would have been consumed locally is now consumed internationally across huge distances. So that did seem interesting. Now, to, to throw back your own favourite question at you, if we were having this... Uh, discussion on a Monday instead of a Sunday, what would you be doing at 10.30? What would I be doing at 10.30? Uh, trying to pull my new book together. Yeah, trying to pull it, it's, well, it's all in bits. Let, let's yeah. just quickly uh, talk about that because the new book is um, uh, The Life and Times of Alan Dupatayan after a week, a week in Terminal 5? Yes. Why? Well, I got approached, partly on, on the basis of having written this book, I got approached by a BAA, um, no one's favourite company, I think. Um, but they approached me with a very weird suggestion that I should uh, be the writer-in-residence at Heathrow Airport for a week uh, this summer and then write a book about it incredibly quickly, uh, which they would then sell and give out to passengers. And I thought this was very strange, but admirable, because I've always loved airports. Again, airports are a quintessential kind of site of the modern world. And um, so that's what I did. And... Um, if any of you are travelling through Heathrow, you'll be able to get a free copy uh, in, a few, in a few weeks. It's a short book, it's a little book, um, but yeah, so that's what I've been up to. There's a couple of, of bits of Scottish interest in the book. I'll just mention one quickly, which is Ian, who's a transmission engineer who, um, and also an avid member of the Pylon Appreciation Society. And um, <laughs> yes, I found that a bit odd. <laughs> Especially as he was got quite hostile to the RSPB for taking up valuable space. Anyway, um, this chap called Ian, member of the Highland Appreciation Society, um, obviously infected our guest in some ways because he managed to find, and I quote, sexual qualities in Finnish pylons. Yes, I mean, if you think of, if you think of how pylon is designed, uh, it's, it's quite a, you know... Phallic? <laughs> yes, but also it can be quite dainty. Um, well, if only I had a picture of a Finnish pylon, but they are very nice. Yes. Yeah, if you get invited out for dinner by a Finnish pylon, uh, don't, don't okay. say no. Let, let's, let's have the lights <laughs> up and take some questions. There's two mics uh, there and there, and there's a hand up already, so we'll start with that gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, there's a number of comedy shows recently where the comedian uh, picks on members of the audience, basically, and says, what do you do? Especially if they come in late to try and leave early. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the jobs are then made fun of. Uh, one chap uh, said he was a banker, was, and the audience all booed. 
and he was told to have another go and came back and said, well, I'm a, a paramedic who specialises in helping children. So why is it we decide that some jobs are in favour and some and are popular and respected yeah. Yeah. Um, and others are not? Yes, I mean, that's a really good question. I think there are all sorts of currents at any time that will shape that. I mean, if you'd ask someone five years ago, uh, you know, a banking was in very high esteem. It was, it was behind the boom and um, it was seen as a vital provider of jobs, etc. so people wouldn't have afforded. Um, I mean, if someone stood up and said, you know, I'm a centurion now, people would have thought, that's a very bizarre job. So times change, uh, you know, or, or I'm a fighter. You know, uh, for most of human history, uh, the most respected people in any society were those who did the fighting, you know, the warriors. Uh, nowadays, we don't place a high premium on uh, uh, um, you know, physical ability. So, so things do change, but you could say that on the whole, a, a common thread running through high esteem is um, the extent to which somebody uh, is perceived to be able to help other people. Uh, that is a key determinant of how much other people, uh, how, how people are, are, are valued. But of course, economics plays, um, as in the city of Adam Smith, it's worth pausing on this, that you know, uh, the, the new vision of economics that Adam Smith pioneered suggested that somebody can be very useful. You know, in, in the old Christian idea is that the most useful people in society are people like farmers and priests, people who are helping people with the mind or the body, etc. Um, Adam Smith and other uh, uh, modern economists come along and say, nonsense, the most valuable people are those who are increasing national wealth. Because by increasing national wealth, they are helping the poor to survive. Um, and that's the most important thing. So somebody could be a banker, a so-called evil banker, and actually, in Smith's view, be much more valuable than a very nice uh, you know, farmer or nice nurse. So, and I think we still have that tension, I think, between the idea of somebody whose job is intrinsically useful, you can see its use utility then and there, and something, someone whose job is more sort of economically powerful in a more, perhaps more distant way, but might be helping to pay taxes to pay for the most vulnerable in society. And this is a, a dichotomy that Smith first put his finger on, and I think that's still rumbling away in, in, in our own methods of assessment. Thank you. One of the most irritating things about this, by the way, is fashions come and go, but journalists are always at the bottom of the popularity. <laughs> um, next question. Yes, chap there. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, do you think the modern corporation has a vested interest in this possible myth that work should be fulfilling? And, and would it be liberating for us, maybe, if, if we actually drop that notion? Um, yes, I think there is a vested interest, isn't there? I mean, there's traditionally been two visions of work that you could caricature as a working class vision and a middle class vision. The working class vision is essentially that work um, is something that you have to do to make money, but your real life goes on outside of your work. It goes on on the weekends, and you know, you're, 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 the people you associate with are your family and your friends. Um, that's a traditional view. The new, as it were, middle class view, uh, which is in many ways now the national view, uh, is um, uh, that you know, work is a route to higher fulfillment, that you should spend a lot of time working because it's, it's almost should be something you love, and that the people closest to you might be your colleagues because you spend most of your time with them, etc. And there are these two, I mean, these two stories about work are always in tension, but you can see why the a modern corporation would be very aligned to what you could call a middle-class vision of, of work. So absolutely, yeah. Next. Thank you. Um, 
I have reached 30 years now working in my chosen career as a speech and language therapist and retain um, a huge amount of enthusiasm for it, which is quite unreasonable, I think, <laughs> in fact. But when my colleagues express any kind of dissatisfaction or lack of fulfilment in their career, I find it very difficult not to feel a personal slight um, with, when they express those feelings. Do you have any advice on how I should manage them? Well, uh, sorry, you have to explain a bit more. What, what do you feel slighted about? Why do you feel slighted? So they're not enjoying their job. Uh, this is the same job as you're doing. Absolutely, right, it's so my then. job as well. And therefore, if they're not enjoying it, then there must be so, something wrong with me because I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I think you might just sort of feel sorry for them. And I mean, it's horses for courses. Not everybody's going to enjoy uh, um, a particular line of work. But I suppose, I suppose, what's upsetting is the resignation that, that seems to be. That, that presumably, what you want to say is, you know, either do this job and love it, or do another job and try and love that. Um, but, you know, I'm very sympathetic. I mean, you know, it's very, very hard to find a job that you're both suited to, uh, that you've got the real aptitude for, and that's available, uh, and that, you know, that you're going to love. It's, it's, it's very, very hard. Um, and I think, you know, it's like, it's like being very happy in your marriage and hearing people who are sort of moaning and not, not that happy. You could get offended, but I think, I think it should be something that, you know, a way of realising just how lucky you are. Um, isn't there a current, another current difficulty here, Alan, that, um, you know, for people of my generation, you wanted to be X or Y or Z, and that's what you then were for the rest of your working life, whereas through no fault of their own and perhaps through no plan of their own, a lot of people going to work now are going to be having to look at four or five different careers because, you know, of the cyclical nature of the economy. Uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating how, um, in a way, people, you know, we hear a lot about how nowadays you can do lots of different jobs. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to just stay doing one job. Uh, and this is often presented in a really nice way. Mm. Um, you know, you started off in one area, you're going to grow and move on to another area, etc. Um, what's often not admitted is that the reason for these changes uh, is not so glorious. It's the fact you've been sacked from, you know, yeah. industries are changing. Um, and, but I think it's still striking how hard it remains to really make a shift in your life from one area to another. You know, though it's though it said, you know, it's easy to change nowadays and there are courses, etc. There are very few people who manage to, you know, um, reverse out of a serious investment in one career and then make a serious inroads into another. It, it's extremely hard um, and it requires a lot of courage and a lot of support from family and people around you because you know, any, any working person is not just an isolated person, it's somebody who's carrying uh, their whole sort of mini community and um, it requires a huge amount of support. And that shift is often age contingent anyway, isn't it? Hear, because lots of people who lose their job in their, in, their, in their 50s and 60s don't have these options open to them. That's right, that's right. So, you know, it comes back to the old thing that there's so much more inside all of us that manages to come out. You know, the, the, the dream is um, that somehow all of our talents find some object in the outside world. Um, that's the dream of work, that, that we're able to take what's precious inside and put it in the outside world, find things that match what's inside uh, 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 in the outside world. Um, but that is, first of all, that's an impossible thing. All of us are too complicated. All of us, you know, everyone says, oh, there's a novel inside everybody. And it's not just a novel. There's, you know, a hospital and an airline and a cake shop and a B&B, etc. There's a whole lot more inside everybody. Uh, so let's not stop at the novel. Yeah. Right. Lady there, thank you. Okay, there's somebody here as well. We'll do them in turn. Take, yes, take that one up. That's fine, Brendan. We'll do that one, and then we'll do the lady in here. Thank you. Yes. Okay. All right. I think most people 
and I speak as one now happily retired, um, may find themselves in a, a job they quite enjoy, for which they have a reasonable ability, and be quite prepared to carry on with it. What absolutely damps everything is what one has to spend far too much of the 24 hours on that job and or travelling to and fro from it. And that all joy goes out of it when the job also becomes very pressured in itself because of increasing regulation and so forth. I don't know how many people here, um, I'm retired, just feel thoroughly disillusioned with the whole thing and just can't wait to get out. And when they started out reasonably happy, what tends to go wrong? Well, I think, you know, something that um, we all know is you can have too much of a good thing. It's the amount... <laughs> The amount and the regularity. Um, and I think we are all creatures of variety. You know, uh, uh, look at how, um, you know, if you study anthropologists' work in early um, communities and how uh, people used to work in early communities, you would go hunting if you were a man uh, and you would do a bit of hunting. And then once you'd caught your animal for the week or the day or whatever, you'd rest. And, you know, you, there was a lot more leisure. Uh, and even in the Middle Ages, there was a lot more leisure than there is now. There was a lot more unstructured times. The calendar was filled with feast days, uh, uh, with saints' days, with local uh, uh, celebrations, etc. We're working now more than ever, um, and much more regularly, because it suits the modern corporation. I mean, a 24-hour society is you know, capitalism's dream. It's often presented as a great thing. Uh, it's great if you're looking for pizza late at night, but generally it's not so great. Um, we don't, on the whole, benefit from 24-hour societies. Uh, we suffer from them. Uh, as, as workers and as employees. And um, uh, you're absolutely right that it's the, it's the, the sheer unremittingness of uh, 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 the, the job that, um, that puts many people off, absolutely. Just before we take that question, hands up everybody in the room who, for one reason or another, is disillusioned with work. <laughs> Gosh, interesting. And who's happy? Oh. Well, it's good. more optimism and pessimism yeah. still abounding. Yes, no. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to ask, um, I'm retired as well, um, and I'm absolutely astonished and amazed at what people get up to once they're retired. Do tell. Well, <laughs> no, it's, it is quite incredible. I mean, my brother-in-law exterminates grey squirrels, very successfully. Another friend Could I have his address? Is this an yes, yes. Is this an argument for extending the working age? <laughs> no, no. It's, it's an argument for... Well, having enjoyed work immensely when I was doing it, and also doing quite a lot of other things, um, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that people do manage to do extraordinary things once they're not actually doing paid work, like exterminating squirrels, like writing operas for Sandy McCall Smith, like going for a 110-mile bike ride every Sunday morning before lunch, like fishing, golfing, angling, stamp collecting, admiring pylons, all the things you talked about. And it's absolutely incredible what the human person has in their ability to keep going once they've stopped working. Yes, I mean, I think it comes back to, you know, this point I was saying about everybody having lots in, inside them, and, and that tends to come out with, with, with retirement. Um, uh, you know, I was talking about hobbies earlier. Um, very, uh, the, the word hobby is often seen as a depressing word because it suggests that you haven't managed to fit the most important passion of your life into your work. Um, so there's been a decline in the prestige of the idea of the hobby. The hobby is seen, you know, if you have to say that you love your hobby, which is, well, what about your working life? But 
again, you know, if we're, if we're to be more complicated about work and what satisfies us, um, maybe you know, all of us need hobbies, as it were. Maybe there's, there's so many sides to us that are not going to find expression in uh, the, the normal working uh, uh, a week. And these things come out in retirement, absolutely. We're going to have to stop. Sorry, I'm really sorry, but we are out of time. But we're not out of time to talk to Alan because he's going to be in the signing tent and all the recidivists here will know that that's left and left again. There he'll be able to sign copies of his book and talk to you there. And I'd be very grateful if you just wait for two minutes and let him uh, out and get to the signing tent before you all rush for the exits. Meanwhile, join me in thanking Alan de Paton. <laughs> <laughs>